A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Podcasts Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films from 1999 from the floor of Parliament here in 2019. Where do you want it from, Phil? No, I was like, was it Parliament or was it the House of Commons? Well, the House of – Is it the same? I don't know. If I'm I'm not mistaken, Parliament is the place (laughs) and the House of Commons is the group of people. Oh, that makes sense. Just, I believe that's the that's the way it is, right? Rochelle you're looking Lodge. at me because yeah. you're as Canadian as I am. I know, but <laughs> I, know, I, you know. I, I knew he was in the House of Commons sense. in terms of that. That was his job. It is Parliament. So, yes, but it anything, is Parliament. Okay. Parliament, I think, is the yes. Parliament is so the you're umbrella. absolutely right, and I'm sorry I, believe, I questioned you. Oh, no, Parliament no, is the umbrella. I be, yes, I believe. Yeah, no, I mean, like Congress, but there are two separate houses in yes. the Capitol mm-hmm. where they each meet, and then they get together in one of them to do uh, to listen to the State of Union. State of the Union. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the British I am, Canadian I am. system. But we're talking yeah. – yeah. But I'm just – Specifically also, to this, to this I'm film. I'm also saying, yes, yeah. in America, okay. there's the capital yes. and there are two separate places where they meet. In England, I'm pretty sure it's one place. I, I believe that it is. I believe so, yes. And then the House of Commons, who – you know, the people actually do things, mm-hmm. generally mm-hmm. meet there. And the House of Lords, who I believe can only – I don't know what – I think they can do one thing. I think they can um, – I think they can postpone a bill. That's literally the only power they have these days. I didn't know this was going to be on the test. So I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting because I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I do not know a ton about the parliamentary system. I'm making it I know up. a little so someone... bit. I know enough about our electoral system in Canada, yeah. which I know has some sort of Venn diagram with the British. I just don't know if it's. Would you totally say, weird. Phil, you know more about the American government or the British government? I mean, the uh, Canadian government at this point. Uh, in what capacity? Whatever. <laughs> uh, I'd say definitely, probably know more about the American yeah, system I think you now. Do too. But I would say that I do know – I know the party system and I know like the electoral process in Canada. But I could not tell you most of the politicians in Canada if that's what you're asking. No, I don't. Who cares about them? There you go. <laughs> 
Canadians. Uh, which you, which, I know that I know that socialism are, is better, but I don't know yeah. anything which about the building. Which you are barely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, and, so we're doing an ideal husband, obviously, with two Canadians. <laughs> two Canadians. About an, a, a, a play set in England, written yes. by an Irish person. Yes. Who spent most of his adulthood in France? Uh, yes. And Paris. Died in Paris. In Paris. Well, yeah. yes, yeah. that's correct. that's France. Yeah. Yep. Just like the House of Commons is in Parliament, Paris is in France. <laughs> I'm learning so much today. And he died in died in France. And um, that that man is Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. And the movie is an ideal husband. It is um, generally considered to be a lesser Wilde Oscar play. Wilde play. I mean, the, I, we mentioned this a little bit earlier before we got on mic, but I don't know a ton about Oscar Wilde, and and I'm hoping that do we I. can learn a little bit about him okay. through this process. Um, what I know about him are the various quotations that are all brilliant that seem to be outside of his plays, just him being him, like Oscar Wilde just being brilliant in and of himself. So, uh, I understand the affinity that people have for him as a person. I'm not sure that I know enough about his work to understand maybe the affinity towards his playwriting. I know. Let me regale you a little. Please. I know the importance of being earnest. That's the only place. This is Rochelle Lefebvre. This is Rochelle Lefebvre. Rochelle Lefebvre. Back again. Yes. Uh, Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Actor, but kind of most importantly, my therapist. Um, and, and mine, quite frankly, I was going to actually say something early, uh, on in this, which is, first of all, the episode that we had was one of my favorites. It's I felt one like of the, it, we really opened up. It's when I think we recognized what this podcast <laughs> could be. be. It's but, also, I believe our first I episode. I have shown many a man his potential. Ooh, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm I don't know what, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to go further that. with that one. Yeah. In, intellectually and, and emotionally, I mean. Yes. Obviously. Obviously. Which you did. Yeah, you yeah, did yeah. definitely did that for me. Um, let's, and, uh. It was, the, I believe, the first one where we went from negative to positive on a movie. It was, yes. It was the first one when I felt really turned around on a movie, if that makes any sense. Like where I came in with a perspective and then and then our guest, which was Rochelle, really sort of made me go like, wait, I'm looking at this all wrong. And I want to make one more point. So it really it really did show me what the potential of the podcast could be in terms of, you know, how deep we can go and, and uh, kind of the, psych- the psychological implications these movies have for our own lives. Yeah, yeah. But the thing, as we've discussed before, Phil, that I am most proud of with this podcast is the way you and I um, are flexible in our opinions. And I think most film criticism and most film co- podcasts um, are about people coming in, mm-hmm. forming their opinion when they watch the movie, and then fighting to the death about it mm-hmm. and saying, you're wrong and you're dumb if you don't feel the way we feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess there's a little of that with this podcast when the other person is wrong and dumb. <laughs> But um, it's very rare. Very, very, but, <laughs> very rare. But in general, this podcast is about the ability of conversation to f- help form and shape your opinion on a piece of art or culture that you've consumed. And I don't think we would have ever gotten there if it wasn't for you, Rochelle. So oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. I, I, I think I'm- it is a conversation. I also think that, and and I thought about this um, when we had lunch the other day about how easy you are to talk to. Like it's a, it is a real oh, gift. I take that, that as have. the highest compliment. But it's, but it's true. Like, and there, we've been doing nothing but talking <laughs> to you. You're, you're easy to talk. And you haven't at, even talked yet. You're easy to talk at as well. <laughs> it's also I accurate. I find it equally yeah. as easy to listen to. But I well, think that we'll there is. We'll a, see if we let you. There's talk. an ease. Yeah. There's a, an ease that you put people at, which I think is part of, you know, why you are you, and and and. Uh, so I do think I do think it's interesting 
that that podcast was a real fulcrum point for us. So we thank you for that. Um, and, and if you're listening to this, please listen to that. Any, yes. Uh, anywhere but here, here, the only podcast where we had to cut out 20 minutes because it got too personal. <laughs> yeah. <it> got, <laughs> that was, we yeah. took hiatus. My family sent you a thank you that. postcard. I forgot to forward it along. <laughs> <laughs> there were definitely moments where we were like, okay, we can't actually say this on mic, yeah. but, um, but yeah. Ernie will blackmail us with it later. Um, <laughs> Wait, before we, before we get too far along yes. from that, I do want to say though, um, to that, to your point, um, that, uh, I think that that's one of the things that we sort of forget about art, which is that art is relational, right? Mm-hmm. It has to do with the person consuming it and what they're, um, and where they are. And so in many instances in my life, as I'm sure in your lives, I have, you know, reread a poem, stood in front of a painting, you know, read a quote again, and it has new meaning because of, mm-hmm. I'm standing in a different place. Um, and so that's one of the things that I love about, about art in general and about rewatching films. And so it's one of the reasons why I'm not disappointed when it goes the other way either. Like if a film doesn't hold up, up. Mm-hmm. I don't go like, I thought it was a great film and it's not. If it was a great film when I was 15, then it was a great film when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have served me to watch a film that would have been really great for a 35, 40, 50 year old, you know, as I get older, those films don't help you be a teenager. So if it helped me then, and it moved me then, then well, I, th- I think that that's a- similar to relationships as well. Like there are people that get obviously very upset when a breakup happens, but like that person was right for you in that time right. in your life. And there's just, there's nothing wrong with that movie or that art or that person being great in that moment. You can enjoy that. I think it's part yeah. of, to your point, we don't live in the moment. We, we want things to last forever. We want, right. we want, we want them to be meaningful forever. forever. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's an impossibility obviously, but, yeah. and there is something, I'm not going to lie. There is something disappointing about a film that I loved when I was a kid and then rewatching it and being like, Oh, this isn't as good. Right. But I, I don't think that that should be held against the film. Like the film was great when I watched it and I got enjoyment out of it then. So that in and of itself should be enough. Totally. And rather than, rather than take something away from the film, just walk to the nearest mirror, look at yourself and go, Oh, you've evolved. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you did it. Yeah, that <laughs> you know, too. Take yeah. it as confirmation that you've, you've, you've moved a few steps in the forward direction. Uh, and I think, I think there's something to be said for, uh, I mean, not to get too uh, grandiose about it, but, the, but also we've changed as a, as, as a society mm-hmm. as well. So when a film you know, is a reflection of that time. We've had many films now where we've been like, this, what's in your head right is... now? Well, the first one that actually three to tango is what came to mind just oh. because of, uh, Mine's way of more just recently, years, but American, American beauty. beauty. Yeah. yeah. American beauty but, is kind of that yeah. quintessential in the moment, but it's funny because I don't feel the, the, I don't feel the way you were, I, I don't share that kind of feeling that you were talking about with respect to American beauty, American beauty to me, uh, is kind of an embarrassment on our culture. It's kind of a blight. Um, and I'm embarrassed <clears throat> that I ever liked it. Um, and Why? It, Do, can you elaborate on your choice sure. of the word embarrassed? Yes, yes of course, of course. Uh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> That's a harsh word. Um, because <laughs> Defend your dissertation. <laughs> yeah, be, be, because um, American Beauty, in my opinion, is a love song to male toxicity. Um, and I, Fair. and I can't really see it any other way today. Uh, the way Kevin Spacey's character is treated versus the way Annette Benning character, Annette Benning's character is treated, the, the perspective through which it chooses to view the events, the, um, the kind of rousing portrayal of, of, of kind of not male toxicity so much, but kind of male indifference and, and kind of the, the championing of it. It all kind of makes me uncomfortable today. 
And it makes me a little uncomfortable about where I was in 1999 in terms of this. I watched that movie and I wa- and I saw Lester Burnham and I thought, that's right there. That's a guy who gets it. And today it's that's a guy who is completely backwards and uh, the last person in the world you want to be. So I don't look back. At, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm happy I evolved <clears throat> and I'm happy culture evolved. But I don't look back at that and say that helped me when I was 17. I look back and say I was in not a great place and we as a culture were not in a great place that we all thought this was kind of an important movie. I, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Not that this is an episode about American beauty, but um, – <laughs> uh, and we discussed this a little bit during the episode. And, and you don't want to. You don't want to talk about an ideal husband for an hour. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. There's some. I'm gonna there might be something to that. I'm we, gonna change your mind. But we, I have no doubt. We, have, we, we, get there. we have no choice but <laughs> to talk about it for an hour. Will we <laughs> but, talk about it for two hours? Right. <laughs> okay. But I, on the American Beauty thing, I, I think that there is something to be said. And, and I, I also want to say too that Kenny and I, and I have talked about doing Redux episodes and going back to, to movies that we've covered with. But I don't want to go guests. back to this fucking but, one. Uh, Except right now. Anyway, uh, I I do think that there is an interpretation of American Beauty that is not nearly as favorable on his character as you think it is. I I don't necessarily film. I think think that's nice. I think that's nice. I don't I I don't think that's text. I don't think it was text at the time. I don't think I I, wait. I'll give you a third frame, please. As the woman in the room. Sure. uh, I'll give you the third frame. So. um, So, you know, yes, an an ode to uh, to, you know, toxic masculinity, um, not necessarily one. Um, And then the third framing, I think, is uh, is sort of like like the narcissistic object. It's like it's toxic masculinity's ode to itself. Um, so that it stays kind of preserved, right? Like, like for me, the film is the same now as it was then in the sense of I watched it then and went, oh, this is masculinity in love with itself. And I watch it now and I go, this is masculinity in love with itself. And so for me, it's never been uh, a positive or a negative view. Mm-hmm. It's been this sort of self-contained thing. And and to that, and to that, I would say, I don't, feel as a woman that we have come as far as you do to look back at the film now and go, well, thank God that phase is over. I see it now and I go, oh, look, we were doing it then too. You know, it's it's, it's an interesting point. The only – this is such a stupid thing to say. I've I've come far, which is to say I've, I've evolved and there are people like me who have evolved. Yes. Um, that have been kind of on the wrong side. And now I, I hazard to say this, but now I, I'm on the right side, in my opinion. Um, and go ahead, Phil. I just, I just want to slightly defend myself to a certain degree. Cause I don't want to say still that per- on the wrong side. <clears throat> no, I want to say that to enjoy or to be able to enjoy parts of that film does not mean that you have not evolved as a human being. Uh, I, no, I, I, totally I, I recognize agree. the film's flaws and I, I and there's stuff that I wish we could change. I think you know one of the glaring things that makes the whole mo- is the Kevin Spacey of it all, which certainly changes the the lens with which we watch the film. And I know that that's not necessarily what you're talking about, it's, but it's it's 100 not what we're I, talking about. I, I made all these observations and made these points before the allegations. No, came I know you out. did. I know. I'm I'm just saying that that's that's part of the soup that 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 American Beauty is in currently. I don't, I don't care so. about that. I I mean I care about it in a macro sense, but in terms of we had this conversation with Ben Acker. We've had this conversation yeah. over and over again. The art and artist. In terms – yeah. To me, 
when looking back at this at these pieces of art mm-hmm. it's completely it's com- it's completely unproductive to say Kevin Spacey was a monster therefore this art is invalid I, I'm not yeah, okay. I, I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but okay. I'm saying a lot of people are saying that. Okay, if you want to say Kevin Spacey is a monster, therefore everything he did is invalid, that's fine. You don't have to watch it. The fact of the matter is these pieces of art exist. Now, if you do want to watch it, to just say Kevin Spacey is a monster or Mel Gibson is a monster, Woody Allen, et cetera, et cetera, then you can't even have the discussion. You can't even start. That's not where I'm going. I, no, I I totally agree, and I think everybody has their own view. And like when I, you know, when I learn those things about people, I can't even say that I have like a philosophy, or I don't have like a rule that I stick Neither to. Like, I. oh, I find out that person's a monster, and then, right. and then, you know, these are the things that I do about it. I, you right. know, um, in my own life, I don't have that sort of a thing. I think it just occurs naturally with each, um, with each piece of art or right. with each artist. So for me, like. You know, uh, I'm I'm Jewish, and when the whole thing with Mel Gibson happened, it was like, oh well, I just never, I, I'm not going to watch any more Mel Gibson movies, and nobody who right. works with him gets a dollar from me, and and that was a choice that I made. But if if I'm home and Braveheart's on TV, you better believe I just lost my night. You know, like I'm gonna the Braveheart does not get turned off in my house mm-hmm. because 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 Braveheart, <laughs> Do you know I mean? and 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 I didn't know at the time, and I loved it then, and I love it now, and it's a great movie and i just allow myself to suspend disbelief just like i know he isn't scottish (laughs) i also i just go oh he's not scottish and william wallace may or may not have been an anti-semite i don't know (laughs) like i I, it's irrelevant to me it's a great film and so i just don't have rules like that you know what i mean we're we're kind of i don't think we know i don't know if we need to we're going into a different conversation conversation. which is basically like but I'm agreeing with you I, I in terms never, of the American Beauty thing. Yeah, being I, able to I, I potentially just, watch it. Whether or not, like, I will put on Braveheart again, I, I, I really doesn't. I don't love Braveheart. Really, it's not. I, 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 I happen, I to, I happen I to, to love go. Braveheart, but, but whether or not I'll put on it again, I really I have like no him. idea. But if we did podcast like it's 1995 and we yeah. had to watch Braveheart, we would pay service Absolutely. to the fact that yes. Mel Gibson's garbage, and we would also. Put that over here and discuss the movie. Just like I think we put that over here and discussed. I think we've. I mean, American I do beauty. believe we're on the same page on this. Like, I don't think that in the various conversations we've had about this, and it's it's a, it is a personal choice, right? You have to you have right. to grapple with this, however you do. And you know, we had it during the Woody Allen episode on Sweet and Lowdown as well, where it's like you you know some of these it's artists hard. are are incredibly sort of vital and, and important parts of, of your creative sort of growth. And Woody Allen just happened to be one of those people for me and, and I believe for you as yep. well. And, and, and it, it gets tricky. Um, but none of this has to do with the Wait, wait, husband. no, 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 don't do that because want to want to want the world's greatest segue? Watch absolutely, this. Absolutely. Watch this. <clears throat> I wonder if this was a conversation that the uh that the British and European public who adored Oscar Wilde and mm. went to his plays and consumed everything that he wrote with passion and celebrated him. I wonder if they had this conversation after he was tried and convicted and spent 2 years in prison for gross indecency with men. I think they did. Right. Were they having this conversation? Like, okay, we're, we Absolutely. no longer will go see or question. perform the importance of being earnest. I think they did because I think it happened. With, I think it happened with Rock Hudson films. Yeah. Um, it did. For instance, I mean, I think there were other people who came out later in life and I think their entire oeuvre was reevaluated by the public. And that was kind of fair game too mm-hmm. at the time. Um, it happened with El DeGeneres. So I, I'm – and especially in – you know, I think this was like the – 
this was the 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 late 1890s this happened right mm-hmm. um this was probably the biggest scandal in for in England for the decade in France for the decade and i have no doubt that his plays stopped getting performed yeah yeah i'm i'm has sure anyone that... it's fascinating cuz has anyone like made a movie about that period in his life like, yes. Oh, they have. Yes. Uh, they, um, Rupert Everett, actually. I oh, think that the, just the recent, film. the recent film that he yeah, just did? Yeah, which is, has been on, I have two small children, so I keep watching it's on your list. so hard. It's been yeah. on my list since it came out. It's crazy. Um, who, by the way, you know, is in, uh, is obviously in this movie, An yes. Ideal Husband. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and he's also in The Import of Being Earnest. Yes. It was yeah. like he was just, it was well, like he, he was is, made. He, I was just, I was going to say, he, he is, really he was. is, he was born to be uh, in every oh. Oscar Wilde thing that was ever made. Like, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, when you see him in this, it's just, it just feels so effortless. You know, it was kind of weird. I always, because I'd never had actually looked up what Oscar Wilde looked like mm-hmm. until this. I assumed he looked like Rupert Everett. Yeah. Like, right. it was just like, there's like, yeah this gorgeous or or that and also dorian gray you know i not dorian gray isn't a person but i had this idea in my head of how dorian gray looked it was just basically like a beautiful man which is explicit um which is explicit in text (laughs) uh oscar wilde not a beautiful man he kind of looks like heavy set weird center part looks like he desperately needs a haircut yeah Mm -hmm. had some i saw a bunch there are a bunch of pictures on the internet somewhere like i mean he looked as good as he could have looked, playing top of <laughs> playing the top of his game. Right. And there are a few where you're like, sure, okay, like maybe like an Adam Driver where I can kind of see what's going on here. Yeah. Where like I think Adam Driver, like when I saw him on Girls, I'm like, all right, fine, like, blah, blah. and now like, yeah, he's on. The, I get it. He's on the posters with Shirley Theron yeah. and Brad Pitt. And you're like, oh, three beautiful people. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> wait, because, because, yeah. but that's because personality and intelligence and wit is super attractive, and mm-hmm. then makes you confidence better looking. I'm going to quote confidence. Oscar Wilde now. Are you ready? Who, yeah. I think Can't I forget wait. what play it's from. Lady Windermere's fan, maybe, where he, uh, one of the characters says. Um, we women love with our ears as you men love with your eyes if you ever love at all. And I read that. Aww, and I read that and I was like, oh, I know, sorry. I was like, but I was like, oh, he he gets me. We do. We love with our ears. That's, you know, that's the most, that's the most beautiful, eloquent way I've ever heard anyone describe the phenomenon of what happens when someone is not very attractive. And then you engage in, you know, this awesome conversation with them. And two hours later, they're like the sexiest person you've ever seen. Can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> Let's unpack that, shall we? No, because that's a, that's an incredibly interesting quote. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best. To, I'm going to do my best. I'm not offended, but I am going to do my best to kind of approach it non-judgmentally. Okay. Um, okay. That may be true for women. <laughs> do we think that's true for men? The first part of that, men love with their eyes, not the, if they ever love at all. Like that may be that part may be true. Do you think? Do we think men love with their eyes? My, <clears throat> I, I'm I'm not a man, so I can't answer it as one. But my experience of um, of dating men and having lots of male friends and talking to them about relationships, my understanding is that um, upon meeting someone, a man is attracted or not attracted, and uh, and that is separate from. I would date you or not date you. It's like, um, do you guys swear on this podcast? Right. So, you know what I mean? So like, so you immediately know when you see someone Uh like, like would fuck, wouldn't fuck. There's just like the two categories. And then, and whether or not you would. When I was a toxic male, we would, 
we would that was the binary. No, I don't. It was mean the that. one. It was the one zero binary. No, no, hold on. I don't. But I don't mean that. And I don't actually mean that in any sort of judgmental uh, in way. any judgmental way. I mean it in a very pure animalistic way. In that we're animals and we have biology. Um, I also would like to add that I would challenge anyone who thinks that women don't see men in the. Well, same that was going to be my question. Right. Like yeah. this is not a. I just think that. Um, in my experience, uh, I, as a woman and talking to my female friends about it, there seems to be a thing where the would fuck you, wouldn't fuck you is malleable and evolves over the course of getting to know you and less so with men. With men. If a man is going to fuck you after a two-hour intelligent conversation, he was going to do it before you opened your mouth. And if he wasn't going to fuck you before you were smart, he's probably still not going to fuck you. Am I wrong? I've been, I've been I know there's only two I've, men in the room, been, but well, there are three. Well, I've been, one of them's not speaking. I, <laughs> one, of them does, one of them doesn't have a mic. I, I have been I've been married for a very long time. Okay, I'm not. So you can talk to this in a way I can't, <laughs> uh, but I can also talk to it in a way that I will not be offending anybody who I have fucked or not fucked in the last ten years. You shouldn't uh, be offending your wife either, by the way. Like my husband and I talk very openly oh, about the fact that like you don't die when you get married, you know? Oh, like, no, that's, still... <laughs> that's what I mean. I, I won't be offending anybody. I, right, this, okay, this, is, this is this is purely speculative. Right. This is theoretical, I mean. Yes. Um, you're right. My sense I, is you're right. I don't think that's a very politically correct thing to say these days, but my sense is you're right. And that's kind of what I was getting at, which is I think that um, – I, I I think that culture has evolved to a place where uh, I don't know. It's a I talk about this a lot with Phil, and I try to talk about it on the podcast, so it's a hard thing to talk about. I think attractiveness is a, is for better or worse. I'm the president in our culture, and less so in our art these days, which is to say. Um, not, not zero. It's obviously very important. It's very important, certainly in terms of casting, but there are less and less, there are less and less pieces of art that grapple with how important attractiveness is, uh, in day-to-day society. And I think it might never, it might not be in, in, in terms of day-to-day society and, and living, it may have never been more, it may never be more important than it is right now. In a culture where we literally are swiping left and swiping right based on the way people look. In the culture, you know, in a culture where if you actually look at who is popular on Instagram and YouTube, which is all anybody under 18 is consuming, it is you it is almost unilaterally mm-hmm. classically attractive people. Mm-hmm. Now that is extended beyond, you know, just classically attractive white people, which is the way it was about 20 years ago. But it is classically attractive people almost completely. So I can I well, sorry, go ahead. I, I mean, I, I think that uh it's as as someone who is not married or in a relationship, I will say that it's hard not to when you meet a person, the first thing you notice about that person before they open their mouths is going to be what they look like. It's it's hard not to notice that. So I would say it's impossible, right? So on on both sides, and of, and of course, it's so, also. I would also say it's okay. No, and I I, I recognize it. I think yeah. that, but to, to your point, the question really, and this is sort of genderless as far as I'm concerned. The question is whether or not, as a person, you are open to listening to that person, having a conversation with that person, allowing that person into your 
into your life for however long that is and allowing that person to show you who they are and being open to being attracted to that person on top of whether or not you can be attracted to them physically. Okay, so I, I think that I think that men and women both suffer from the inability to do that sometimes and the ability to do that sometimes. I agree. And I just want to point out for anybody listening, if you think we're not talking about the movie, we are. The gentlemen just don't know it yet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess we are, yeah. I because, mean, well, I don't because know. <laughs> No, because I'm, I feel like what you what what the the question you're asking is to what extent do we let people evolve yes. from that first impression, right? The first impression is unavoidable, and then to what extent do we let? And the first question, the first impression is absolutely about attractiveness because we see people before we, mm-hmm. um, before anything else. Or if you're uh, if I'm in the next room, you hear me before you see me because I'm loud. But what? whatever <laughs> it is, see what I'm saying. But do we let people evolve past that moment? Um, and I think, and even evolve later in a relationship as well. I mean. Again, to oh, tie yeah. it to this film, you know, specifically with the, you know, with uh, Gertrude and her perception of her husband and how that changes, and that she allows herself to be open to, and and for him to evolve as well and change. Yes, yeah, so it, I, I think is is also part of a successful relationship. Yeah, and I think that so one of the things You're that I love do it again it kills no. Me. <laughs> I, I'm like I can see it happening. Wait, wait, it. and as a married per and as a married person, I think that you're gonna. I hope I hope you're, if you're happily married, I think you're gonna. Which you seem to be. I think yeah, you're gonna you agree know. with me. One of the things that I love Depends about about what Oscar Wilde does in this in this play, and I'll say this film, um, is that what he is saying is that um, when we look at Gertrude and, uh, and Robert. oh my God, thank you, Gertrude and Robert. When we look at Gertrude and Robert, um, they are so happily married and they're, they're brilliantly in mm-hmm. love, right? But they don't know one another and they also don't know themselves. Um, and this is how a lot of people meet in relationships, right? You fall in love. And if you're under, I would argue that if you're under 35, you don't know yourself at fucking all, right? Like you just start to with that. So people meet, they don't know themselves and they don't know the other person. And then we're going to have to stop this podcast again, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then, and then I, and then I think that's it for us. We'll be back in 20 minutes. And then I think after I blow into a paper bag for a little bit, And then, and then I'm trying. I'll try not to get too. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no, no, no. Go for it. And then I think a lot of I think a lot of relationships fail because we are not we're not told that not only do you ha- you have to do two things when you get married if you get married uh, at a younger age, um, which is simultaneously with another person you have to get to know yourselves and then each other and then reconstruct the relationship. And if you are willing to do that, you stay married. And if you aren't willing to do that, then you get divorced. And that's what happens in this film, right? So they fall in love. He's beautiful. He's perfect. He's a shining star. He does all the things. He's an ideal husband, right? I'm with Minnie Driver who says, oh, an ideal husband. I don't think I should like that. Um, Because she's smarter than everybody in the movie. Um, She is. and, um, And they meet and they fall in love and they get married. He's an ideal husband. And she's this perfect wife, right? And these paradigms, by the way, even though the play was written in the 1800s, still hold up. I'm an actress. And when I read breakdowns, when I read character (laughs) breakdowns for the women that I'm playing, they are still the same 
women, right? So like, what is Gertrude? She's like, has all these dreams for her life, right? She has political aspirations and she's smart, but she's more than anything, the perfect plus one, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? She can still say all the right things at the parties and she's not too, she's not political. She's only political when there are no men around. Her husband is the shining star and, and she can do no wrong and she's virtuous. And then you have this scandal that unfolds and he realizes, oh shit, I actually don't know who I am now that my past has caught up with me. Do I you know, do I allow myself to be blackmailed? Do I bury the whole thing? Do I tell my wife the truth? What kind of a man am I? And then he presents that. And then she goes, oh my goodness, am I forgiving? Right? Am I forgiving? Uh, I'm trying to talk about, I'm trying to talk about allowing women to progress and move forward and be modern. Do I mean anything that I say? Because now I'm being presented with a real challenge that my husband is not perfect the way that we expect women to be. Am I willing to accept that? Am I willing to let a gender and let people move forward and evolve? And then they're more happily married and more in love than they were before now that he's now that they're both liars <laughs> yeah. right he lies she lies they tell the truth and shame the devil and now i feel like it's a happy now it's a happy ending well it's the whole like sunlight's the best disinfectant on some level as well you know what i mean like that idea of like just you have to admit your 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 failures um, i don't know why you're not on every podcast <laughs> <laughs> Every movie would be a 99, though. Well, be like, no, you just, this movie is like marriage counseling. No offense to every guest we've ever had. <laughs> you're the best. <laughs> there is just no doubt. You're just, yeah. you're right. You're, you've, you've, you, you, you found that, you, you found kind of the guts of this movie or this play or whatever. Um, and you actually, to me, like, all right, so my issues with this movie basically where I found, um, I found kind of the Rupert Everett, Mini Driver, even Julianne Moore aspects of it, uh, which felt like kind of the driving forces of this movie yes. narratively to be a little boring. Oh, I actually little, would have, I don't know that they are the driving guy because well, it's funny because I don't think they are anymore. Yeah, because it feels I don't think, like it's Robert's it's Robert's play. It does, but it kind of it's not it, marketed it, that way. No, but it also does kind of start and end with the Rupert Everett of it. Yes. And yes. And it is kind of his evolution that I think you're following, like you're, you're kind of classic character arc. Yes. Um, he's also the, he's the, he's the single, you know, there's this, there's more kind of like, I know, I know. And he also seems like the Oscar Wilde stand in. And I understand Mm -hmm. that Oscar Wilde is not the Rupert Ever character in this, but still that's kind of what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And if you're following his, and I'm sure you're going to turn me on this too, but if you're following his arc, it does see, it does seem a little rote. Um, but, that's not what was going on in this movie, or at least that's not all that was going on in this movie. And you've already turned me a little bit, so keep. Uh, I was just going to quickly yes, give please. the synopsis of an ideal husband for our listeners. Why? Because uh, I'm not sure a lot of people have seen it. <laughs> um, yes, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Uh, Sir Robert Chiltern, played by uh, Jeremy Northam, is a respected government official and a loving husband. His friend, Lord Arthur Goring, Goring? Goring. Uh, played by Rupert Everett, is a notorious womanizer who lives a life of casual, lounging, meaningless flirtations and multiple illicit affairs. But when old acquaintance Laura Chevrolet... Is it Chevrolet? Miss Chevrolet. Miss Chevrolet. Did you watch the movie? They said it like a hundred thousand times. I just don't. I'm going to get into why. I'll talk about this. All right, all right, all right. uh, Laura Cheveley arrives in London to stir up trouble. The lives of the two men become increasingly complicated and intertwined, and their true natures are revealed. An ideal husband opened on June 18th, 1999, in 25th place. Mm, Didn't know Uh, they went that long. uh, Against opening films Tarzan and The General's Daughter. I think it was probably platformed is my guess. I think it probably is why it doesn't matter. Went on to make $18.5 million on an $8 million budget. It was selected as the 1999 Cannes Film Festival's closing film. And Ideal Husband has 85% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 70% from critics. uh, Sorry, from audiences. Uh, I'm going to read two quick portions of uh, Roger Ebert's review, which was three stars. He said, an ideal husband works because Wilde created an expert mechanism, kind of slow motion, serious, screwball comedy for manipulating the plot and characters. But of course, the actors are indispensable. They have to make characters plausible while negotiating a plot of pure contrivance, and they have to be charming even while lying, scheming, and blackmailing. The two leading men, Northam and Everett, are smooth and charming. Northam's Sir Robert, more realistic and serious about his life. Everett's Lord Goring, uh, like a Wildean visitor from the outside of the plot, who sees everything clearly, is amused and hardly believes it when Miss Cheveley almost snares him in her net. As we leave the 20th century, there seems to be a powerful nostalgia for the British 19th. Every year brings three or four of these literate comedies or melodramas set in London. Life was more exciting when you were the entertainment in your own living room and didn't have to watch it on TV. Which I think is a fair review. Um, And then Rolling Stone very quickly says, uh, what shakes the dust off this period piece is the vibrant acting. Northam on a roll from his superb turn in The Winslow Boy and a contemporary change of pace in the upcoming Happy Texas, of which we have discussed. (laughs) But we had The Winslow Boy, right? I don't know if we've done one. We haven't. I don't know if it's 99 or I think it's 98. Okay. Uh, Finds the bruising feelings in his flawed hero, Blanchett. Uh, manages the neat trick of making virtue seem enticing. Driver is flighty, fun in her scenes with Everett and Moore. Uses seductive guile and an impeccable British accent, of which I take some umbrage with. I'm not sure it was an impeccable British accent. I have a hard uh, time discerning whether a British accent is impeccable or not. I do not have a hard time discerning whether an American accent is impeccable <laughs> or not. Uh, it's 99, Winslow Boy. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Well, so we'll cover that. Um, and Moore, using seductive guile and an impeccable British accent, creates a hissable, kissable villain. As these lovers and liars sneak around the corridors, I know, around the corridors of politics and sex, shades of the White House and Whitewater, whatever, Peter Travers, <laughs> uh, Wilde proves that even a century after his death, he can still throw a hell of a party. Uh, I think that both of those reviews are pretty glowing. Like the reviews were yeah. glowing for this film. Yes. So I went into it knowing that, which was maybe unfair to the film a little bit because I had never seen it before. I had very little context for the film. And again, as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I found this film confusing. And this is a, a blind spot I have with period pieces, specifically British sort of movies like this where uh, it all kind of blends together. I find myself unable to discern for whatever reason mm-hmm. – First of all, it's sort of like they're speaking in, a, in another language because they kind of are. So I'm I'm having to sort of really pay attention to what they're saying, which again isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it requires a level of attention to sort of figure out who everybody is and what what they're exactly trying to do. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I struggle with movies like this. Um, let's the, do, let's do it. Let's have a fun game. 
Want to do a fun game on the pod? I don't know. Sure. How about you <laughs> uh, explain the plot oh, and God. Rochelle can tell you where you've gone wrong? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I can I can explain it from, from 30,000 feet to a certain degree. Like, I think that what I needed and the movie made sense once I kind of in my head was like, oh, Robert sort of committed inside trading. Yes. Like once I was able to, to see it yeah. through that kind of prism, then I was like, okay, I get it. But before that, I'm like, there's there's some Argentinian canal and there's okay. like all these things going on. Okay, wait. And so I'm I gonna, don't know what this is. This is not part of this. This is not the game. 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 Wait, wait, wait. But also, I'm going to stop you and I'm going to stop you and I'm going to say that this is where it's really, really important to uh, remember that it was a play first and remember that. Right. And remember that in when it was, you know, when it was written in the 1800s or, you know, mid 1800s, um, you know, <laughs> I was gonna say the play is the thing, right? Um, so you save that for the Titus one. Dialogue, I will. Um, <laughs> the the plot. So so like you know, way 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 before Shakespeare, right? But let's just go that far back. Um, you want to go audience, like to the Greeks? Audience, <laughs> sure. Let's go all the way back. Let's go all the way back. Um, the you know. Um, Writers and audiences, uh, or you know, writers and, and audiences alike, uh, figured out I think probably pretty early on in in human history that there were you know is the common theory that you know there's only so many stories, right? And that actually plot is kind of irrelevant, and in that plot is only useful in the sense that plot should put your characters in situations where we get to watch them behave in ways that are revealing and interesting. And one of my major complaints about movies now is we are so far from great dialogue and behavior and we're so into plot and special effects and like things happening and you have no attention. There's no and there's no attention span. Yeah. And this requires um that you pay attention. But then the reason why Oscar Wilde is so beloved is that when you pay attention, you're so richly rewarded for doing that. If you hang on every word, mm-hmm. I feel this way about Aaron Sorkin, right? How the you know the West Wing moves so fast in his films and the everything, the dialogue is so, but you have to you can't not pay attention for even a moment. But what you are not meant to be paying attention to is the plot (laughs) plot will you'll absorb the plot by listening to the characters speak and by watching their behavior and and i think if oscar wilde was uh, was alive today and and oh wouldn't i love it you know at this fourth empty microphone (laughs) i think i i would hope that what he would be interested in is what you learned about men and women and human nature and relationships. And he could give a shit whether you learned anything about the fucking canal, right? Or about the blackmail or the plot only is important in that we learned that men and women are not perfect and that everybody has a past, that everybody's hiding something uh, and that sure as you are human, you will trespass again. But I would, I would, I would argue that, and I, I mean, I agree with you, yeah. but, I, but I think that there's something to be said for the confluence of both of those things, right? Which is that there is a plot in this movie and the plot is there because we need that to some degree in terms of, you know, things to happen and, well, and sure. that those things reveal things about the characters, right? Like a good plot does that. Yes. Now, you know, another show that, uh, or something that I watched recently was I watched the entire run of Deadwood before the, the Deadwood movie came out. And, and that was a show that, again, 
requires strict attention. You have to give it 110% of your attention. And it's not, and, and even then you might still, things might still fall between the cracks, but um, you're rewarded for that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's so rare. I mean, I don't know if there's a show or a movie right now that demands that level of attention and is that rewarding from it. Like, I, I, I love Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think that Amy Sherman-Faldino is a tremendous writer. Right. Um, and there's, there's any number of things that, that moves at, at a really quick pace, so you need to, to you know, keep up with it. Um, but I absolutely agree with you that uh, if you put the plot aside, which I imagine Oscar Wilde wasn't all that interested in it, um, it is about just, you know, relationships and human interaction and, 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 you know, the human experience. And, and it is very, and just even what we were talking about earlier in terms of how we sort of baked in all of that relationship stuff into this film, it's, it's a much richer film than I gave it any credit for when I watched it. When I was watching it, I watched it with the wrong brain, I guess, which is I was far too focused on trying to understand what the fuck was going on rather than just allowing, as you said, this dialogue and these characters to sort of illuminate themselves. Right. You have to remember, I think it, it, I think it's important to remember that, um, that theater, particularly in the time period that we're talking about, because now, you know, now we have like, you know, really complicated revolving stages and lighting setups and, but a play, um, then would have had, would not have had the complexity of like yeah. the modern, right. It wouldn't have looked like the phantom of the opera. Right. Um, It wouldn't have had all the bells and whistles that we have now. And so the thing that the audience goes for um, when they're going to a play in the 1800s is to hear the words. This is why playwrights were revered more than this is why now no one can tell you unless they're unless they really, really love film. No one that I know who just watches casually as just a regular moviegoer can tell you who wrote a film. Um. You know, so we don't, and we true. don't, and we don't, and we don't stop writers. We do, most of the time don't know what writers look like, and we don't stop them in the streets. I mean, Oscar Wilde couldn't walk down the street, right? And so, and and why is that? Because the words were paramount. And my father, who loved Chinatown, um, the, the movie, the movie, <laughs> and, and actually, and actually going to the one in sure, Montreal sure. Okay. And, and eating food and shopping, but. Um, <laughs> But but who loved Chinatown so much, um, who was an English teacher. And the, all he talked about in the film was, you know, yeah, the plot was very interesting. And, um, you know, and it's a great story how Southern California got water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and, all, and I'm glad somebody made a movie about it and the corruption that, that, invo- that was involved in it. You should also – everybody should read Rivers of Empire. But, um, but mainly it was about the words. It was about the things that people said. And people spoke. Spoke like that to each other, which is something I think that we forget, um, which is goes along with the sort of Instagram, Tinder, instant gratification. People had discourse. People had lengthy conversations. People had salons. They gathered in the parlor after dinner and they talked for hours about the politics and things that were happening. And they did it in a way that was civil and they made each other laugh and they were entertaining. I mean, to be a conversationalist was an art form back then. And so dialogue really was the thing. So to watch this movie without putting the words first I think isn't really giving it a fair shot. I think you have to hang on every word and then see what happens. And, and I, w- I would argue that I didn't do that. Right. So I, I think that that was part of, and, 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 and to be fair, it might be the, one of the bigger stumbling blocks for me with this genre of 
of movie and television to a certain degree, um, which is that it is in sort of the, the florid language. It is in the way that it's told, or at least from a dialogue perspective. Um, so I, I did, I, I, I found myself a little bit confused, but um, you know, that's what it is. I'm going to take this a different direction. Good. Um, I want to go back to the relationship thing. Are you going there? No, no, no. I want to, I want okay, to go there. After. I want to defend <laughs> Phil oh, and, his, and his bad brain. I, I'm um, not sure I would have called it a bad brain. Well, that's what but, it is. Okay. Um, no, you, um, the plot is there. All right. So the plot, the, the, and I don't, I don't think the, the point we're making is that it doesn't matter. But I think that's where we're heading a little bit. And if it's in the text, if it's in the four corners of the page, it matters. And if you found it to be unengrossing or if you found it to be confusing or if it was a stumbling block for you to actually get into, you know, get up inside mm-hmm. and immersed in the world of this movie, a tough time mm-hmm. locking that, is not a, that is not a failing of you. That is – and it's not necessarily a failing of the play – but it does affect your ability to engage with the material. So I, I, I agree. And especially to the extent that I think that um, I think that you it's not it's not I, I, I also don't blame you. But I do think <laughs> that you missed what the plot like you because the, the fact that you watched the film and then think that the plot well, is that the plot is about his past. Right. That that's well, no, it's about the of fallout it. of his past. Right. So I would even argue that that's definitely part of it, right? That That is stuff that happens, which is plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that um, just like I think it's neither a two-hander belonging to either couple. I actually think it's a four-hander. Um, all, I think that all of four of them are central. Um, I would say that that for me, the main plot was about the relationships. Like I was wanting to see – what was going to happen? Like the blackmail was part of it, but what I wanted to see, what I was the story that I was interested in was: Are these two going to overcome this, and are they going to stay married? And is Lord Goring, which they set up right from the get-go, is Lord Goring going to get married by the end of this thing? Yeah, those, those, those felt are the to two me like the questions. two central Ab- questions. Absolutely, and I, I I would argue that that Robert's past indiscretion. Or whatever you want to call it, in terms of his the whatever he did with the let you know finding out the information in order whatever. Uh, he's essentially proven that is what he's sets essentially it in proven that he is ethically malleable. malleable. Yes, he, that he was ethically malleable in the past mm-hmm. in um, in service of his aspirations. Yes, and is that not correct? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends. Like, do you think that Jean Valjean stealing a loaf of bread shows that he's morally malleable or that he was just starving and desperate, right? So, mm, those feel like two very different things, though. Yeah. Well, they. I'm not. I'm not. But I'm not arguing for black and white. I'm arguing for a spectrum. Do you see what I'm saying? So, like, malle- do I. Malleable is part of. Malleable is not saying that you are. You're bad or. You're bad or good. It's saying that you're. Malleable, which yeah. is which is what Julianne Moore is preying on the idea that, that it's it's not a it's not a great comparison, but I always think, it feels weak. I guess I'm not sure. It's not a great comparison, but like it's the same idea. I in, in the movie by the you know with the canceled man uh, Mel Gibson Ransom. Have you ever seen Ransom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Re- that always works for me really well because the idea was that in Ransom he previously paid off. Um, yes, I think he. 
It's like a union union bosses Mm -hmm. who had like were essentially holding his company hostage. Right, there was a strike, and he paid them off, and it was under the table, Mm -hmm. and he was willing to do that to save his company. So why not? Why not? So yeah, Gary Sinise's thesis was. Um, you've done this in the past to say your company, obviously you're going to do this for your kid. You, it wasn't that I was looking to kidnap any kid. I was looking to kidnap the kid of someone who is yes. ethically malleable or, or whatever. Like, I don't really know the, the point, but someone who has a history of doing this, Julian Moore's point in this movie, I believe is the exact same thing is in the past. You have done something like this, so, yeah. um, that is frowned upon by society. Mm-hmm. And I believe you will do the same thing in the present to protect your reputation. So do it to my benefit. So do it to my benefit. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I and, guess I would. I, I the other thing too, I would say is that you know, Jean Valjean stealing the loaf of bread and Robert, you know, doing the deal that he did is the inciting incident. Now, admittedly, yes. they both happened many, many years previous, but that ultimately out, sets you, everything in motion. But you find out about that at the end of Act One, yeah. and that is yes, that, yeah. that that is where the inciting incident lies. And but it it serves the larger question of the film that he asks about every single element in the film, which Oscar Wilde is is asking is. Do we evolve? Can yeah. we evolve? We he's asking that about yeah. the characters. He's mm-hmm. asking that about the relationships. Um, I mean, that's the central question of Lord Goring. Yeah. Right? Is we're gonna are we gonna watch him evolve or not? And I think um, his answer is that we can. His which answer I think is, is which I think is interesting. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very optimistic perspective on human nature and and relationships and whether or not we are capable of change. I mean, everyone in this film, for all intents and purposes, has a very happy ending, which is which is very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, Every one of them is able to see their weaknesses, grow from it, and be able to move on to All right, a, a so, healthy relationship. So let's take this for a step further. Modern modern times, mm-hmm. um, if you find something out about your spouse mm-hmm. that you don't like, uh, you can get you can get a divorce, and there is minimal societal fallout from that. Right? It's mm-hmm. not nothing. It's true. But you do you you pay a little price, but you don't you don't pay that much. You don't get price. shunned. You don't get <laughs> at shunned. the dinner parties, yeah. Right, right? Yeah, your life essentially it's very difficult personally, but your life essentially goes on socially. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't an option. No, no, right? So their option was basically um, happy marriage or sad marriage, <laughs> right? Yes, and I, I think that I think it does kind of undercut the thesis here, which is. We know that we know that these two have found a place, have have have, have found a have found a, a equilibrium in their marriage where they have accepted each other. I'm talking about Robert and Gertrude. But Gertrude really doesn't have a choice. She doesn't have any recourse here. Um she has to either accept him or accept that she's gonna have a unfulfilled marriage. She really can't leave. So I appreciate that. I, I really do appreciate yeah. where you came from yeah. in terms of – I really think it's actually kind of you know poetic and beautiful, the idea of you enter into a marriage uh, as a young person and you have a history that you are not necessarily sharing and you have pieces of yourself that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. And as you find those out, are you and your partner going to accept those parts of each other that are not so glistening? Right. Um, and they do, but they kind of have to. Yes, which is why I, I don't think that you can see – which is why I say it's a forehander and I don't think that either couple can be taken in isolation. I actually think that Oscar Wilde has divided up what he wants to say about relationships and what he wants to say about um, – let's call it coupling, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
you know, about, about finding your person, um, using these four people, because I think that if I have to distill sort of my, you know, whatever I've learned about relationships being, you know, married and having had a couple of other long-term relationships, if I had to distill it down, I would say that, um, you know, one of the secret sauce ingredients I have found, um, is, is this exchange, right? Is, and I sort of want to rewrite the wedding vows. <laughs> like I think like wedding vows should be that uh, people look at each other and they say, um, I will do the work of finding out exactly who I am and I will be honest with you about who that is. And you will, or the other person says, I will do the work of finding out who I am and I will tell you honestly who that is. And then each person agrees not to try to change the other person. <laughs> Because when you are, when you meet someone and you develop a relationship with them and you try to, and your goal is to try to change them, or you make that your goal at any point, the relationship is doomed. And that is what acceptance is, is key. And that, but that only works if everybody is, knows who they are and is honest about that. You can't love somebody and also want to change. You can't love somebody who you don't know. And you can't love someone you want to change. And so those things have to go together. And that's where I think that Mabel and Lord Goring are the other piece of that. Right. Because what's what I what's brilliant, what I love about Lord the Lord Goring journey is that Lord Goring doesn't change at all. He just he really doesn't. He is the same at the beginning of the film as at the end of the film. It looks like he changes because he starts off going, I'm so single, I'm so single, and then he gets married. Right? But but the person that he marries is – the reason that he marries her is because the reason he doesn't want to get married is he doesn't want what Robert has. He doesn't want to have to be an ideal husband. He doesn't want to have to transform himself into some version mm-hmm. of what an acceptable husband looks like. And the, re- the woman that he marries is the woman who he realizes all along is like, I want you exactly as you are. I want you flawed. I want all the things about I the thing all the thing the reasons you don't want to get married and the things you don't want to change and all these flippant things you say like you know the the to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance you know and and all that shit which is so brilliant um, is she's been in love with that guy the whole time so who does he marry he marries the one woman who's like no no just the way you are just. Just the dog that you are. I love him. I think it's great. There's something interesting to that notion. There is something interesting to that notion. <laughs> I would agree with that. I think that in terms of of uh, of him wanting to be with a woman that wants him not to evolve in any way. I no, think I is... don't think that's it. I think he wants to be with a woman who sees him for who he really is instead of holding him up to an ideal, which is what right. Gertrude does, which comes crashing down on her head. Right. It makes me think of uh, Amy and Nick Dunn a little bit. Who? Uh-huh. Gone Girl. Oh. It makes me think of her seeing him for everything. That, like she wants him to just be him in some way. And then when he changes, she doesn't want him anymore. She gets bored. She gets bored but with that's, him. But that, it's a different thing that's entirely. That's an age old thing. But, but, there is, but there's something to just this notion of, yes, I want to get married to a person who doesn't want me to change in any way, shape or form. Like I think that – I think that a relationship is a give and take, right? Like I, I want to be with someone that wants me to be the best version of myself. 
You know what I mean? Not necessarily just the version I am now forever. Oh, of course. And you want to be challenged. But I think one of the mistakes. He doesn't want to be challenged, I guess, is the impression that I'm getting. Yeah. That's no, what... I didn't get that impression at all because she does challenge him. She has his number at every turn. See, go back and listen to the dialogue. <laughs> every single time he says something, she has yeah. some witty reply where she undercuts him. She knows ex- she ev- she always at every turn is like, I know exactly who you are. Oh, does that work on other women? Oh, you're so she like literally rolls her she eyes at him. She calls sure. him on all his shit, that, which true. he does find attractive. She She's the that's only true. person he wants to be around, which I think is an accurate portrayal. Well, I think that 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 is sexy. Taking it back, I mean, I think Gone Girl is an interesting um, comparison. I also watched a, a simple favor last night. Um, oh, the, the Paul, uh, Feig, Paul movie. Feig movie, yeah. That and movie is crazy. Yeah, it's whatever. We can talk about that on <laughs> the Freaks and Geek stuff, but um, yeah. it's uh, I didn't I didn't hate it. I don't mean to imply that I yeah, hated yeah. it, but but there, I didn't hate it either. There's another there there. It's, it's a weird movie. In its own way, it's a Gone Girl ripoff. Which is to say, and what I loved about Gone Girl was the um, admission at the end that the, that Nick wanted the crazy, that Nick wanted. So, mm-hmm. so it's this it's this metastasized version of being challenged, mm-hmm. which is what some men say they want, and a lot of men don't. I want to be challenged. Um, you know, my wife, who I, I do, am incredibly in love with, and what great part- guest. Great guest, and part of what I'm in love with her, part of the reason I'm in love with her is she's so much cooler than me, and every day I aspire to be someone who is worthy of her. And that is why I'm bumping up against this idea. My my quest to become an ideal husband, my personal quest Mm -hmm. to become an ideal husband has made me a better person and a better husband and a better father. Um, And and I, I, I... I think this might be a gendered thing because I look at the, I I look at marriage and being a husband and being a father as um, something to an occasion to rise Mm -hmm. occasion to which to rise. Uh, Totally. I, I, I don't, I don't think we disagree. I think that we hear the word change in different ways. Um, and so I think we actually are just having like a, a, like a, a semantical a, a issue, semantical issue well, because I would argue that this is for those of you who love philosophy, go, you know, Theseus's ship, right? Um, do you know about? No idea. What you, you don't know, you know about Theseus's Seth? ship? No. Okay. So here's the, Theseus's ship. So Theseus has a sh- ship. Okay. It's right up there with Schrodinger's cat. Um, Theseus. Theseus is a he's a Greek warrior. I think he's the guy who killed Medusa in the end. Anyway, okay. Theseus has a ship. And uh, over the course of many years and many battles, it gets uh, – it falls into disarray, disrepair, it erodes, right? And parts of the ship have to be replaced. And then so over time, over years and years and years, uh, Theseus realizes that over all these years, he has actually replaced every single piece of the ship at some different time or another. Is it the same ship? Is it ship? the same ship? Yeah. Right. And so there's all there's all kinds of arguments. There's all kinds of arguments to be made for, you know, continuity. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and whether or not you decide that it's the same ship or it's not, if every single piece is new, but it happens slowly over time. So I would say that maybe instead of the word change, the word we want to use is evolution or transformation, because I'm not talking about I'm not talking about not wanting someone to evolve or transform. I'm saying that. You have to know fundamentally who you're with 
And I think that people do make that mistake. I think that people are not self-aware enough or aware enough of other people to realize that some of the things that they are hoping that will change about a person are a, is a fundamental, right? Is like a, sure. you know, that that's connected to intrinsically, that's who they are. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not wanting someone, I'm talking about the mistake of wanting someone to be someone else. My husband is shy. He just, he, he's shy. He socially doesn't, he just doesn't flit about the room making small mm-hmm. talk with people. He's just not that guy. That's and why he loves you. It's, he jokes that he married me so he never had to talk again. That's <laughs> <laughs> his favorite joke. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, and I wanted him to be more willing to go to things with me. I want a date to my friend's wedding, right? He doesn't want to go to my friend's wedding. He doesn't want to go to the dinner parties. He doesn't want to be my, he doesn't want to go if I have a premiere. He doesn't want to be my plus one, right? But he loves me and he wants to support me. And so we've come to a place where he can, he has found a way to show his love and support for me by showing up sometimes. But it would be completely unrealistic of me to expect that not only is he going to show up, but now he has to talk to everybody. Now he has to and like be it. and love. Now he has to love it. Now he has to right. So one of those things is me asking him to push the boundaries in order to make room for me, mm-hmm. push his comfort, right, make space for me. And the other is me asking him to be somebody else, and they're not the same thing. Okay, no, I mean that's that's one hundred percent true. There there are degrees to everything, and there are reasonable requests and there are unreasonable requests. Um, I think, you know, after being in a long-term marriage, I think I, I can relate to what you're saying. I'm the you in the relationship. Laura is the, your husband of the relationship. Right. She does not want to go to things for the most part. And she does not want to talk to people she doesn't know. I'm the exact opposite. It's my favorite. I don't care about going places, but I love talking to random people. That's what this podcast is about. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what it took me a long time. To and I was young when I got married, so it took me a long time to accept this, mm-hmm. and uh, it has made my life and our marriage better. And I think it's taken her a long time to accept certain things about me, which has also I think made our life and um, our, our life and our marriage better. Her life and our li- our marriage better. Now, the the place where I think we're having this semantical kind of difference and it's not really a disagreement so much it's about where the change is coming from who is the agent of change here right and in a relationship if the change is coming from the spouse towards you uh that won't work right it'll work to some extent but it really won't work agreed there'll be resentment Mm -hmm. and whenever resentment comes in you're in trouble um i've for the most part stopped trying to change my wife in any way. I've just accepted that she is who she is. And I think she's accepted that I am who I am. I've accepted that her family is who her family is and that her friends who her friends are and her life is what her life is and her schedule is what her schedule is. And taking all of that off my plate, my emotional, psychological plate mm-hmm. has made my life so much better. And it has made our marriage better. Preach. And it has, it, but I think it's, it's also, it's, it's lessened, it's lessened the expectations we have towards each other. And it's allowed us to just do what we want to do. And it turns out we want to do a lot together, you know, but you just don't want to be forced to do this or forced to do that. The, I, if I can't say, if, 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 if this turns into a marriage podcast, the one thing I can't 
I, I it can't should be a marriage contest. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to start a marriage podcast. I will do anything. Yeah, but I just with mean Rochelle. it's called. It's, <laughs> it's, it is a marriage podcast. It's called an ideal husband. husband. I can't stress enough what a relation, what, what a relationship ruiner mm. resentment is. Sure, agreed. It is the and, and friendships. The, I mean, I would say relationships across the board. Yes, yeah. a relationship ruiner. Everything you want, and the way to avoid resentment. Just accept someone for who they are. Yeah. Yes, and if you're and if you're listening and you're in a relationship or you're about to be in a relationship or you ever think about relationships, you should really take that in. I read. I hate to. I hate to cite a study and be like they, you know. But all I know is they. There was a study, a okay. very long term study. I think it spanned like twenty years or something. And anybody, if you Google it, it's pretty well known. I think so. You'll find it easily. But um, so it went over like twenty years, and they interviewed dozens, maybe hundreds. I don't know how many, but a lot of couples who were married and then they went and they interviewed them again 10 years, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. And what they tried to do was find in these interviews some sort of common denominator between the couples that stayed together that was missing from the couples who split up. What is the defining factor of staying together, right? And they found only one thing, that all of the couples who broke up turns out had in common and none of the couples had who stayed together and resentment was the thing Mm, and resentment interestingly was i think the way that they ended up defining the lack of resentment in a relationship is that each person in the relationship said independently that they felt they had the better end of the deal i married above my station oh sure yeah (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So the so the wife was interviewed and she said, "I married, you know, I'm oh I I you know my you husband, the, my husband, the people who are in happy I'm getting the people who are in the happy relationship said I got the better end. That's of the how deal. I feel. I got I the better end of the deal. I married up, mm-hmm. and it is impossible for that to be true for both people in the relationship, although oh. both people felt that way. That's what a relationship should feel like. And resentment yeah. is the thing that takes that away. Resentment is the thing that makes you feel that you married beneath you. You married below your station. That Resentment is, I am a better person than you. Mm-hmm. And your behavior is showing me that you don't deserve me. That's the foundations of resentment. And so that, that equation that makes a marriage last dissolves in the face of resentment. So it's the, actually the, the, the one thing that is guaranteed to be your undoing. That's exciting. <laughs> I, love val- I love validation. <laughs> Now I want to make it's exciting. I want you guys to, can cut all that out. By no way, way. double it. I want to bring it back to the theater. I mean, to the theater. I want to bring it back to this movie. By the way, Phil and I are going to go see our first movie today. We are. We're going to see it go together. See? We're going to see we're Crawl. See, we're going to see our eighty-seven minute movie about a killer uh, alligator. I think there might be more than one. Um, oh shit! Really? I don't know. All right. So before Phil more than one alligator or yeah. more than one movie about no, no, a killer no, no. alligator. Well, this is the first this movie. The first movie we've ever seen. Fifteen years of friendship. That's so sweet. Are you going to share a popcorn or get separate? Hopefully. Well. On keto. Um, <laughs> perpetually on keto. Yeah. Um, bring it back to the, bringing it back to this movie, tying, tying <laughs> real life into this movie and the idea of resentment. Your, Rochelle, your examples of, of things you were trying to change about your husband, very similar to things I've been trying to change my wife. Specifically, like, I want you to go to my things. I want you to go to my friends' things mm-hmm. or dinners, this, these kind of things. Um, that's not really for me. That is for my that is for my perception of the way people perceive me in the moment as a guy with a wife. 
as a guy with a with a wife who will go these places and support her these places. I have gone to weddings alone. I have gone to since I've been married. Mm-hmm. I have gone to dinners alone. I have gone out alone. I have gone to movies alone. And you know what? I've been fine. Same. I have survived. Same. And I, and and if Laura or my wife and this, although I feel terrible, but whatever. If she doesn't want to go to these things, she doesn't have to. And you know what? Like, stop making not making these things a mandatory. Uh, a, a mandatory activity has made our life better. Now, the reason I'm bringing this, this back to the movie is because the movie is about the way society views your relationship, mm-hmm. right? And the idea uh, that Gertrude might have, Gertrude might have of what are people going to think of me now that they know that I've married a scoundrel, essentially, you know, not to make it so black and white. But someone everybody thought was Lance Armstrong is now Lance Armstrong. What do we do now? You know? Um, and there is beauty in the idea of I'm going to stick it out and figure it out whether or not this still works for me. And it seems like in the movie you're, you're – it's definitely clear that it does work for them in the movie. I, I think that's true. Um, I do still bump up against the fact that I don't think she had any recourse. But – I think that that's, I think that's something we can also learn, which is it really does not matter what you think anyone else thinks about your relationship at all. Well, I mean, I would, I would say that in general, the idea of not caring what other people think is incredibly important. You know what I mean? Just in terms of, it's of the most, just, important it's the thing. most important. It thing. is. It's the most important thing you could do for yourself. And, and, and it's, and speaking for myself, I do find it quite difficult I, in terms of, and, and I imagine I do project that onto my relationships as well to a certain degree. But I think that to your point, if you can shed that, if you can somehow find it within yourself and within your relationships to not give a shit what other people think about your relationship, then yeah, that freedom must be just wonderful. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to say something now where um I'm going to get hate mail from from my sisters and and feminists and I I'm a feminist and uh, and I'm all for and I'm all for forward movement for women of any kind. Um so don't read anything into this but uh <laughs> but I'm still going to get hate mail. Um so I do think that one of the old-fashioned values that I found really important and really helpful in my marriage um is this idea of, you know, not caring and no one can know what goes on in a marriage, right? And it's nobody else's business. And I would, and to that, to that effect, that you're on the same team, right? That, that partnership is, we are on the same team. And so here's, here's where the hate mail, here's where you know what to write about. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that, I, that makes me insane, and I witness it, I'm sorry to say this is only my observation. I see women do this to men more than I see men do it to women. This one particular thing, which makes me insane, which is um, women, anyone disparaging their partner in public. Right. The way that I hear couples talk to each other, I travel a lot. Airports is a great place for seeing who people really are. <laughs> travel brings out sure. travel brings out the best of your true natures. <laughs> um, but 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 even but in so, so many social situations where I see um, where I see uh, uh, more more women, and I'm more talking about this in terms of the relationship and the dynamic of the 1800s, in the context of the film, where you don't 
disagree. Their version was you don't disagree with your husband in public, yeah. right? You don't even speak unless your husband <laughs> invites you to speak or talks mm-hmm. to you. But but you don't disagree with him, and you don't belittle him, and you don't emasculate him in front of other people. Um, and that is something that when I was watching this film. I was thinking about because I'm watching how much I was watching about how she was with him in the scenes, how Gertrude was with him in the scenes where there's other men around. And I thought, you know, I wish, I wish that some of that had survived because I feel that people would be happier in their partnerships if some of that had survived. I don't think that this thing that we do, men and women alike now, I'll bring it to whatever version. I think it is. Where they, I think it is. Where they publicly uh, disparage each other or disrespect each other or chime in and go, you know, no, no, that's not what happened. Ugh, I'll tell it. Right? Well, okay. Maybe not the last one. But <laughs> as a, but, but I'm ta- but tone. I'm talking about that yeah. as yes. opposed a to like tone. a cutting yeah. tone, yeah. a belittling like like I told you to well, I told you not to leave that in the car. Right? Well, it's the same thing with kids when parents talk to their kids that way too. Like totally. you are I don't I don't I Let's don't. go to the let's go Can to the I, Let's no, 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 go to hold the, on. The, I don't I'm saying <laughs> I I make an effort. I make an effort when I talk to my husband, well when I talk to him all the time, but I'm lax in the house, but when we are out and about, right? I am aware of other people hear how the way I talk to my husband, right? And I especially do that at his place of work. I talk to my husband in a very particular way in his place of work sure. because I don't want to change because that because that's my job as a spouse, right? Is to uphold some sense of honor and position for him in his workplace. And I think that translates to the rest of the world too. So anyway, I digress. That's you not, guys know what I'm saying. That's I not totally just a, I would just say though, I don't think that's a gender thing. I think that uh, – I think it does go both ways. Um, perhaps as a man, I hear men do it a lot. And, um, I think that's totally fair. I think that it's one of those things where, because I'm a woman, I hear my, I'm aware of my viewpoint more. It happened once on a plane where the guy behind me was disparaging his wife and I had a real crisis of conscience. I I, I was like, God, do I ever sound like this guy? I hope I never sound like this guy. And from that moment forward, I made a concerted effort not to be that guy. Oh, and I just, Uh, I'm so sorry. I just figured out what it is. It's because when I hear men do it, I put it in a different category. When I hear men do it, I hear aggression. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if we were talking about partners being aggressive with one another, I would probably be talking about men in that because that's my reaction to it. Sure. Mm. Whereas with when I hear women, I don't hear the aggression. I hear mm. the sort of emasculation and disparagement. Yeah. But when men do it, I feel like I'm hearing them be, be aggressive. So I think I, it is equal. I both just hear suck. it in different ways. But uh, yeah, but, but, and, and <laughs> both kind of fall into the same category, which is – or at least you know what I think. Um, when you're out in public with your spouse – the last person you want to be worried about is your spouse. Totally. Be on my team. Yeah. That's it. And that's just what it comes down to. You want to feel like you are out with I mean, this is pretty this is pretty basic, but um you want to feel like you two are a two person gang. Yeah. And that and, and, and if not you get, if you get in a fight, they're getting in a fight with you. If you get in an argument, they're getting in an argument with you. If you make a point, they're backing you up. A united front. A united front. Now, uh, that does bring me to the point about the kids. And sometimes you have to say put some, shit, you gotta, say you some shit to your kids you don't want to say in public, which sucks, which is a bad moment for everybody. But you just have to. 
I don't know. By the way, Oscar Wilde agrees with us because the last, basically the last two lines of the film, I think it's the last two lines of the film when Mabel and Arthur get married Mm -hmm. and the, uh, and the, the father is behind them. Her father-in-law is now behind her going, you know, and you, you better, and you better make her, you know, an ideal husband. And she says, oh, an ideal husband. I don't think I should like that. And the, and the father, the father-in-law says, you don't deserve her. And he says in the last line of the film is, if father, if we men married the women we deserved, we should have a very bad time of it. <laughs> right? Mm, and yeah, that, that it's right. like that's yeah. literally he Oscar Wilde is agreeing with us. That's yeah. his point yeah. at the end. All they got married, they're now on the same team. Mm-hmm. I I have nothing that's to That's it. That's the whole <laughs> game. I and mean, I'll it's tell kind you, of, I mean the main fucking thing, everything Rochelle and I are talking about. The main thing comes down to this feeling of of are we on the same team or are we not on the same team? Because we're supposed to be on the same team. Yeah, I mean it. it, it it's, That's when a relationship doesn't work anymore. Yes, yeah. and Robert's undoing is that he gets married to Gertrude, and that's the one thing he doesn't tell her is the thing that comes back to bite him in the ass. Yeah. Right? He didn't fully get on board. You yeah. can't be on. I can't be on the same team if I don't have all the information. Let's take this to Big Little Lies. Anyone watch it this season? I did. Did you watch it? I did not. Oh uh, well, there's uh, a real interesting. Are we? There is. Yes, the Laura Dern um, I was not not a fan of this season. Whatever the Laura Dern storyline was, I think incredible because you sure because that really is is an example of this exact thing, which is she's a high powered woman, um, CEO of her own company, incredibly yeah. powerful on her own. Her husband seems like he's also a pretty high powered guy, money manager, um, and together they make untold of millions money. of dollars yeah. and live in an incredible house. And it turns out he uh, was bilking his customers or, or running a Ponzi scheme or something to the effect where they took all – the authorities took, took all of their money. Because and it, she doesn't know. She didn't know until it happened. Okay. In the, in the premiere of the season. She didn't know until it happened. And then he had basically had this giant secret. And the whole season – it's interesting because she really does present a united front the whole season to the world. And then they get in the car and she's basically like, you motherfucker. Like you were in my life, you motherfucker. Um, she just the, maybe the best line in the season is "I will never not not be rich." I will not not be rich. I will she not, was not amazing, be and the delivery on on Laura Dern. I mean, she's she steals the entire season. She does, and this and this is a very good one to one to to this uh, ideal husband. It's just it's 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 the modern version of this, yeah. which is he really you he when you get in marriage, whether or not you realize it, you are giving the other person the ability. To destroy you. And they show that in the show, I think, really well. Everything she built was destroyed by him. You are giving them you are giving the other person so like in movies in general, they do it in a different way where you're giving someone the powerful the power to kill you in your sleep, essentially. You know? (laughs) Like so about 10 years ago, I bought a card that I love so much and I kept thinking I'll give it to, you know, when a friend gets married, I'll have a card ready and I keep waiting for the right couple to give it to. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think I'm never going to part with it. I've had it for like a decade. It's a card. It's a congratulations on your wedding card that says marriage is betting someone half your – marriage is betting someone else half your stuff. You'll love them forever. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's true. But I but I but now I need a new one that says marriage is giving someone the oppor- – giving someone else the opportunity to <laughs> – to destroy you yeah. or kill you in your sleep. Yeah, yeah. well, that's what it's, it is. It, it's it like, feels that way. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, this show certainly is an indictment of marriage. Yeah. That's what it is. Like, and I, you know, I know someone who married someone mm-hmm. who destroyed him and basically, like, could have killed him in his sleep. And 
it's we knew it in the beginning <laughs> we knew it going in and it just it is not something to go into eyes wide shut no and it's another the reason great, why yeah, indictment of another great indictment. it's the reason why um if uh if a couple gets married you know the divorce rate's like 60 something percent right if a couple gets married and the woman is over the age of 30 and has a college education the divorce rate among that population is only 30 percent that true makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah. because, because they know, the older more you are and the, they, the older you are yeah. and the more you have opportunities to investigate your own line of thinking and be introspective and know what you're looking for, and know what you're looking yeah. for and yeah. then the more you can – yeah, sort of – not that it, not that it inoculates you from people who are out to destroy you but it helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. I mean number I do- one – Love your spouse. Number two, make sure they're not out to murder you. It's not even out to murder you. No one's out to murder you. This our friend's wife might have been, but no one's <laughs> out to murder you. But do they have the capacity to destroy you? That's really like that's the big little lies kind of secret that she, she yeah. Didn't see, but it's interesting. An ideal husband, in an ideal husband, he never betrayed any of that. I don't think that you know. What I, mean? I mean, I know he did rise well above his station, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that actually kind of irked me a little bit in the beginning that didn't that Dickensian thing which is like yeah, yeah, yeah you know there are like some scoundrels among the rich but like you gotta watch out for your eye heap that's the guy that that's the guy that's gonna <laughs> shank you you know <laughs> like and like and i i think that that, that covers up a lot in like this like these these you know these dramas of the rich yeah. which is like yeah, yeah there are some really terrible rich people like look i mean watch out it's happening in succession a little bit right now, right? Sure. The whole – the family, they're all like kind of bad, but they're all kind of bad in their own ways and they're all going to protect each other. It's people they've let into the family. Like – They have uh, the nice Shiv, yeah, Like yeah. Shiv's husband yeah. who you're like – The best. Yeah, Tom? Tom? Tom, he's amazing. He's my favorite <laughs> fucking character. He's the greatest. But the way Tom treats Greg versus the way he treats the family oh, the and like – I. Tom is the oh. guy you got to watch out for, right? And Greg, you're kind of side-eyeing man. interlopers. <laughs> and I – Gotta watch out for him. I'm very I'm, – I'm, I got a real side eye towards pieces of art that are like the real bad people are the people who were like – who were born poor and now they're going to fucking come up to you know be in your country clubs. Oh my god. And yeah. what are they going to do? Like that's very – so that, that – I did kind of bump up against that here. But I think that is kind of a symptom yeah. of the genre. Yeah, the genre is very – So I'm pointing I, to my phone because that's where my notes are. I – um. <laughs> So as I was watching this film, I was thinking, like, what is my favorite British period piece? Like, what is sort of the the pinnacle of it? And what do I hold all sort of movies of this ilk against it? And I think it's Sense and Sensibility. Mm, I have to agree. I, I absolutely adore that film. And and I wonder if part of it is is the Ang Lee infusion into it as well. There's sort of this, this uh, I don't want to say outside looking in, but a very different culture. I mean, mm-hmm. he comes from a very different culture. And he makes this film that I think is so beautiful and, and I adore it. And, and because I think part of it to me is maybe a little less than this film. This film felt like there was a little bit more plot machinations mm-hmm. than, than sense of sensibility. And I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily well, also just very different writers. Yes. Like Austin, I mean, Jane, yeah, Jane Austen. Austin. Jane Austen is so um, beautifully sentimental. Um, and Oscar Wilde is, I mean, the thing he's famous for, like you said, at the very beginning of this podcast, you said, you know, I don't really know his work so much, but I know like all the, qu- yeah, I know the so many quotations. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what he's known for. And that's one of the things that, that, um, that I think separated him out was this, 
was his wit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when people talk about Mark Twain, uh, sure, and you know, incredible. The storytelling is incredible. But one of the things you can't escape is to people quote him and how witty yeah. he was. And it's like a defining factor of the writing. Um, and so I would also say that maybe that's just like not your taste too. It's possible. Like, I mean, this it's not everybody's does... taste, something that's a little more superficial and very witty. Yeah. I mean, th- this film is, is uh, uh, less about the haves and have nots. Jane Austen feels yes. to al- always kind of is about that. In yes. Some they're all in the same of... class in this. Moment. Right. There isn't, you don't have that sort of uh, class warfare that, that exists within Jane Austen stuff, um, which doesn't, this, or, or the other film that I was thinking about as I was watching this or another film in this oeuvre, I guess is Gosser Park, which I oh, adore. I, love that I mean, Gosser Park is a, is a masterpiece and that's all about upstairs dancers. I mean, that's all about the class system. Um, so this film just it, it's it's very when it was when it was over I thought to myself it's very light it's very it's it's very fun and 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 I certainly didn't certainly didn't hate it but I didn't totally lock into it and it wasn't until mm-hmm. talking with you about sort of all of these things that we've been talking about for the past mm-hmm. hour and a half is made it so much richer for it so again I I mean I I applaud you for coming in here <laughs> on a film that I that I didn't think I wouldn't, I didn't, I certainly didn't hate it, but I don't think I thought very highly of it until, you know, you were able to sort of really kind of unpack a lot of the stuff that was there that maybe I just didn't give credence to. I might not have been in the right headspace to watch this as well. Like it just, it all just kind of didn't really click for me. Right. And now in hindsight, I'm seeing a lot more that I liked that than, than when I watched it. I don't know. But I also, I know we've been talking about it for a long time, but also I think there's one other, you, that brings up a really important point, which is if you talk, if you look at Oscar Wilde's work as a whole, so like people don't realize like he wrote Salome. He also wrote the happy prince, you know, that beautiful fable about the statue of the prince with all the jewels and, and he's like this, it's the center of town Mm -hmm. and there's beloved statue. It's like the glory of the town. And he's got diamonds for eyes and sapphires in his belt and the, the birds come. And, um, there's some, there's some awesome element that I'm missing for some reason that the birds come and they like pluck his eyes and they pluck all his jewels. And in the end, you know, when he's got no jewels left and he's not beautiful anymore, talking about attractiveness, Mm -hmm. um, then the statue is old and the townspeople say, you know, let's go and tear it down. And I think it's something the bird keeps taking the, I think the birds keep taking the jewels because there's some actual real person. Um, there's some poor person, uh, like a pauper who just wants to be happy and he'll be, if he's happy, then he's wealthy. And then he has the, like the little bird wants to make him happy. And so he goes, keeps plucking from this. And so the statue gets more and more unattractive and, you know, less writ, you know, poor and Mm -hmm. whatever. And the person actually gets Mm -hmm. wealthier and happier. And then like, neither of them are happy in the end. It's really, anyway. That's great. Person's going to die too. I'm just saying, but, (laughs) or like picture of Dorian Gray. Right. Right. Like he like Oscar Wilde has written works that are extremely melancholy and deep. And and I think it's important to say that this isn't this just isn't one of those. Like he it's not what he was going for. He also is sometimes just very witty and funny. The play is a comedy. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be a comedy. It's a Um, a play within a play. They go to a performance of of, of the importance of being earnest. Right. And there's a character in it who's gambling who's named Bunbury. And when Uh they're announcing the guests, they announce Mr. Windermere. It's like there's like these little little breadcrumbs everywhere Mm -hmm. in the film, which I like. So I do think it's important to just remember that it is meant to be kind of light and airy. Absolutely. And and I do think it was successful at that. And one might argue maybe too successful at it in the sense that I didn't see the depth that was there. Right. Um, so 
I don't I don't know how you felt about it, Kenny, but um, <laughs> I feel I think exactly the way you feel. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm as positive as you are now. In the end, I'm more positive I mean, I'm, than I was. Yeah, but... I mean, we'll, 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 we will do the zero to ninety nine on this, yeah. so we can we can grade yeah. it. But I mean, we've hit, okay a lot, with you. we've hit a lot of the plot, so I don't I don't necessarily know that we need to. And that's it. okay, by the way. My goal is not to change you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the yeah. <laughs> what a healthy <laughs> relationship. <laughs> You said the magic words to you. Know. Um, thank you for being honest about who you are and oh how you feel about the Thank film. you for accepting me. <laughs> so, um, it's zero's 99, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, we, we've, uh, we've sort of, we've, we've, yeah. uh, so I did not see this in 99. Do you remember the grading system that we have on this podcast? I, Probably not. I don't. So basically, it's uh, when I saw it and how I feel now, zero to 99, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest, 50 being the recommendation line. Uh, what you thought of it then, what you thought of it now essentially. So you saw it in 99. I did. Do you remember what you thought of it? In I loved it and saw it multiple times. So you, what would you say from zero to 99? You would have given it back in 99. Oh, I would have probably given it like a 90. Okay. And same now? Same. Okay. Same. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I had not seen it in 99, so I don't have that perspective. I only have this perspective. Uh, before this podcast, I probably would have given this a 60. Um, it, it just didn't, it didn't really work for me. I didn't, hate it but i didn't love it um it was what it was i'd say now i'd probably give it i'd give it probably a 68 it's moved <laughs> okay maybe even a 70 it's moved i i'd certainly like it more uh than i did before and i think that uh i i guess the i don't know the right word to i respect it more now than i did then i think that you've given me a uh, much more of an appreciation for the artistry behind it on a writing level, because I think that as I watched it, it just felt very sort of like nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it also, I think is, as, as we said earlier, I was so latched onto the mechanisms of plot and story, right. That of which there isn't much, but what there is of it, I found myself just so trying to, I'm going to, on a, a very, very small tangent here, uh, I was listening to a podcast, Blank Check. They did one on Miami Vice just recently. And one of the one of the hosts talks about how it gives him anxiety to watch a film that he doesn't understand what's going on. And he finds that that he just sort of gets very kind of worked up about it. He's like, why don't I understand what's going on? Fair. Um, and, and at the end of the podcast, he explained that he watched Miami Vice again and just allowed it to be what it is. Just allowed to – went on the ride, allowed it to sort of wash over him and to just be a vibe. Um, and I am in lockstep with Griffin in that regard. So this film, to me, I found myself really just being like frustrated with not knowing what was going on that I'm not sure that I was able to actually enjoy the film or lock into it in the way that uh, that I should have. So that's that's my story on An Ideal Husband. What's yours, Kenny? Eh. Um, I gave it a 42 before this podcast. <laughs> um, knowing full well that it would probably move up after the conversation, and it has any conversation, any um, film that can lead to the conversation this rich is uh certainly worth seeing and um i'm not going to go that high though i i was 65 was what i was going to say before yeah. you're you're you were so bold as to go 68 um i think it's 65 i think it's worth seeing i think uh i th really loved the first half hour of this mm -hmm. um and was really into it and uh i thought it got pretty fat in the middle and there was a lot going on that um in the second act that 
didn't draw me in and kind of lost me. Um, so, and I, and I still kind of think that the, the Rupert Everett arc slash character was not that interesting. Hmm. Um, in fact, I, I didn't get to this during the conversation about change and whatnot, but, um, he didn't change. And I, I think that is a failing actually. And he also, um, he didn't affect the plot, which I think is a failing. Um, he commented on it. He was a, he was an ear. He was available and there was a misunderstanding that he was a part of, but um, to spend so much time with his character who didn't do much. No, he got the letter back. He did get the letter back. He did but, get the letter back. But he didn't do much in terms of um, – well, effect, well, affecting plot with with mm-hmm. with his character, right? Like, it, yeah. Like I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was kind of waiting for him to be part of the mechanism instead instead of just being a mechanism for which the to to move the plot forward. I want to disagree, but you're trying to wrap it up, and I'm not going to help well, the situation. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I I I will agree and also sort of disagree that how I- did he change Robert's trajectory in this? Outside, how did he change? How did he affect the way Robert handled his uh, with Gertrude? His, well, he's the his, only his, his he, issue. He's the only person in the he's the only person in the film who is honest about who he is, sees everyone else for who they are, and accepts them as so, they are. Right. So he is the person who is Gertrude's confidant. He he's the one who tells Gertrude like. You have to get over this. You have to make it right. And he does also. He, I mean, he starts. Letter. He does say to Robert, "You need to be honest with her and just tell her yeah. what happened." So he's and a priest. I mean, like a little bit. He's he he, he he's confessed to, and he reflects back. They're better angels, but he really doesn't. I I, I think I do. I do see the commentary of this is a more fully formed person than you know the, than the the cad normally is. Mm-hmm. But um, he doesn't really have layers as far as I can, as far as I can tell, right? The only layer is like, is he, is he, or is he not going to be the kind of person who gets married, which isn't that intriguing to me. So that's my two cents on that. And I okay. think 65 is where I land okay. for this movie. <laughs> I love I would, I would, no, no, no. I would also say, I want to say, Fighting. I would also say that it is worth watching for the scene at the end where the speech that Jeremy Northam makes yes. in the house Great of commons, speech. Great speech mm-hmm. and has political advice for us here in 2019. Oh you know what? We, we yeah. didn't, we didn't discuss that. Didn't. What's interesting. I about- wrote it down. Should I read the, should I read two sentences? Of please. It? Sure. Please. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, the end of his speech, he says, as we stand at the end of this most eventful century, we have a genuine opportunity, one honest chance to shed our sometimes imperfect past, to start again, to step unshackled into the next century and to look our future squarely and proudly in the face. And I watched this the day that Robert Mueller did his testimony. Right. So I, I wish that Robert <laughs> Mueller had ended his testimony by standing up <laughs> and saying, saying that. Yes, yes. I, I took a note on that that I'd like to read. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, this is some kind of commentary on where we were in 1999. Yeah. There's a reason you make this movie in 1999 when I believe this was set in 19... This couldn't be set in 1989. 1899, was it? Uh, no, he died in 1900. That's so what it I was thinking. Earlier, but, yeah. But in, in that... Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have the opportunity to enter the next century century unshackled, but that actually makes me a little depressed. <laughs> Are we ever going to get better? Right. Because yeah. we we had a hundred years uh-huh. to heed this kind of advice, 
and we never did. And then people were saying the same thing in 99. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what's happening here, right? In 99, they're saying that, right? They're saying shed the 20th century, step into the two th- to the 2000s, 21st yeah. century, make yourself better. And we did for eight years. And then we stepped so many steps backwards mm-hmm. um, that in 2099, mm-hmm. we're going to be re- replaying stuff from 1999. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be hoping that the 22nd century, assuming we get there, is better than the 21st century, and it's not going to be. You know well, why? So I mean, it, that's- because if we're lucky, people evolve, but they don't change. There you go. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I, if we're lucky, people will evolve to not get skin cancer. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, wow. well, to On quote, happy note. to quote Oscar Wilde's alleged alleged dying words, "This wallpaper is yeah. killing me. Yeah. One of us has got to go." Yeah, which is what? Oh, you must quotes. be kidding me! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what a guy! He was the best. You're gonna come on for Titus. Yes, we're gonna record that in, in a couple months when when you're. I'll available. never watch that movie. I'll read the I'll read the play you're, instead. It'll take a shorter <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> it's a great movie. We're gonna uh, we're, you know we'll talk about Julie Tamer's Titus in, in a couple months with you, and we can't wait to have you back. And thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to come back. Promise me you won't like it too much, so I'll have something to work with. I promise. Oh my God. You. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to. That's gonna be. I'm excited to see how we can use Titus as a lens into our relationship somehow well it was my relationship with my mother the first time relationship yeah. with my wife this time might it's be tight. sisters a lot of, lot of siblings in oh, Titus. Say, oh, kids kids and that too yep siblings too it's a lot of parents kids. siblings of... and kids yep well you can come on for the other sister as well if you want <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening someone's gotta do it uh, we are at podcast like 1999 on twitter and instagram thank you so much for listening bye podcast like it's 1999 podcast like it's you Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.